Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We welcome today Joe DiPietro, who has a very good distinction, the current longest-running musical off-Broadway the show, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change, another broad, another off-Broadway credit, I guess I should say, The Thing About Men, and many others that we'll get to throughout the, the hour today. Joe, welcome to Downstage Thanks Center. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. And we're talking to you as I Love You, You're Perfect celebrates its eighth anniversary yep. here in New York City. It just turned nine, yeah. It just turned, it turned or our ninth year now. So beginning its ninth year, yeah. but it's been seen all over the place at this all point. All over the world by now, yeah. It's a re- pretty remarkable. So... The Get, first question mm-hmm. is for me is very simply. Before this show, we didn't know Joe DiPietro. <laughs> we didn't. Oh, we hadn't sorry. really heard of Joe DiPietro. What were you doing before you suddenly launched this this great long running success that's that's played all over? I was an advertising copywriter. Uh, I worked for CBS and, and a kind of a, in a smaller agency for um, most of my twenties and into my early thirties. And I uh, always uh, loved theater. I grew up uh, in New Jersey and always loved theater and was exposed to musicals and plays at a very young age. And always thought, oh, I'd love to write for theater someday. And how do I do that? So I sort of wrote at night while I had this uh, day job and just sort of you know wrote for a long time. And no one cared for a long time. Uh, and then I basically had written these sketches that started playing in a bunch of uh, downtown uh, basement theaters like the West Bank and the West Bath. And uh, they were just about people da- in their 20s dating. And um, a producer saw it at one point and said, oh, this is a musical review. Put music in this. And I had no idea what he meant by that. And I just thought, oh, oh okay. And uh, and then someone hooked me up with a composer named Jimmy Roberts, uh, who was uh, more experienced than I was, certainly. And through three or four years, the show eventually became I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. I should point out that you were both the lyricist as well as the writer of the book, the author yes. of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And as I really had no idea how to write a lyric. Uh, but uh, but, but two th- one, one thing which I learned was that the um, lyricist gets a third of the show and the book writer gets a third and the composer gets a third. So I rather stupidly said, oh, you know what? I'm going to be the lyricist too. So that way <laughs> hey, I get a bigger cut. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, exactly. That was my uh, <laughs> very unhonorable uh, way of becoming a lyricist. And uh, Jimmy was great, and he really kind of sat me down and said, read this lyricist, you know, study that person and how to do this. And I also really very much wanted to put jokes in those songs because so many theater songs, which I always loved, I felt were more oftentimes more clever than actually laugh out loud funny. So I really sort of aimed to put jokes in them, and, and that's what we did. But for those few people who may not have seen I Love You, mm-hmm. You're Perfect, Not Change, as yet, it has been running for eight years. Give us just a quick idea. Basically, it's a series of sketches that are tied together. It's a musical review and uh, about four, uh, well, there's four actors in it, uh, and it's about uh, dating and marriage uh, amongst heterosexuals in the first uh, act. Uh, is about being single and trying to hook with someone and the second act is about marriage and having kids and growing older together and divorce widowhood uh, and even though there's no, they aren't continuing characters there's very much an arc because we do follow uh, relationships from the first date to um, past widowhood from the basic pickup line at the beginning of the show exactly <laughs> the, right yes. through the widowhood exactly the right the, yeah. Through this, the show is hilarious, and it has a lot of truth to it, a lot of truisms, mm-hmm. and a lot of kind of cliches about dating and marriage as well. And they say that people should write from experience. How much of this have you experienced? <laughs> <laughs> if you say all of it, I'll say, my God. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, well, I, you know, you sort of write 
I mean, I was in my late twenties and early thirties uh-huh. when it, when I wrote it, uh, and you certainly and I've never been married, and you certainly sort of write what you know. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I I think relationships and people are all the same, and uh, in a comedy like this, which is very much a universal comedy, that's how you write it. You write it from the inside out, and I just believe that what I want and what I feel is essentially what everyone wants, what everyone feels, and and that's why we have all common humanity. Now, I'm curious. You said that you started these as sketches in uh-huh. downtown places right. like the West Beth, which is interesting to me because one of the things that seems to have made the show a success is its broad populist appeal, right. which seems a little bit at odds about something that you say started <laughs> downtown. Who did, who were you writing for um, when oh, you started I was, this? I mean, it, you know, since it's become a big success and it has wide appeal, people always think you write it with that in mind. But I was just writing it because the sketches made me laugh and made my friends laugh and my family who came to see it laugh. So there was no, you know, greater purpose that, than that. It just seemed like a fun, funny, lively show, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. Uh, and my sensibility certainly is more middle of the road than an edgy downtown sensibility. So, um it's probably one of the reasons for our success is that it does appeal to such a wide audience. And who do you think's going to it eight years later? Is it the same people who are going to it at the beginning? <laughs> I mean, who have you tapped into? <laughs> well, I, I walked yeah. by the theater the other night, uh-huh. and all I saw was women. Right, and right. Tons of women. Yeah. I didn't know if this has turned into the Bachelorette Party show or the <laughs> – I, I was I, just curious. Do you I, go back Oh, I do it? go back. Yeah. Not, not a lot, but I do go back. And um, – I, I, you know, the one thing the show has played in so many other places, it actually sort of s- sells the show. So when people come to New York, they want to see the original production mm-hmm. of it. And we have, you know, four great uh, New York actors uh, in it now. And we've been fortunate. We've had a great, great cast throughout the years. Um, and our director, Joel Bischoff, keeps it up. So um, we certainly get a lot of people from out of town. But, it, you know, it, it's always been called uh, the nudge show because the actors, when they watch it, from the stage, they see people nudging each other, saying, "That's you. That's <laughs> your aunt Florence. That's this person. That's you. You do that." So it definitely, uh, it, it it definitely touches, strikes a lot of chords. Well, mm-hmm. th- there were four women sitting ahead of me. Uh-huh. The, the I saw it was a matinee, mm-hmm. and I would say these women were probably married. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know for sure. They were probably forty-ish. I would say they never stopped laughing. I could <laughs> see they saw themselves and their yeah. husbands or yeah. boyfriends or whatever mm-hmm. in the show. Yeah. There were also a lot of uh, couples, certainly. Older couples. I wouldn't say, you know, ancient couples, but older. Right. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you write it in your 20s, you think it's going to appeal to kind of your generation, your friends. But it really has, for whatever reason, appealed across the board. And the the very first performance of this in a theater called the American Stage Company in Teaneck, New Jersey, um, eight or nine years ago now, when we did it, in the middle of the first act, a woman yells out from the audience, this is my life. Just like... (laughs) And we were, like, stunned, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's what this show is. So, um, you know, women certainly uh, buy a lot of theater tickets, and it certainly has appealed to them. But I also think it's the type of show that uh, many a woman has dragged her husband to, and he's wound up enjoying it, too. And I actually saw the men laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, often at themselves. They can right. see themselves well, yeah. up there in the, yeah. in the situation. And, and, I, and I hear from uh, uh, friends of mine who uh, check out the ladies' room, some women friends of mine, uh, which is a great way to uh, get information about a show at oh, intermission. Good, good to know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not <laughs> sneaking in there. Don't worry. Uh, but anyway, you know, saying that oftentimes they hear people are surprised that the show was written by a man, that they thought it was written by a woman. Um, just because it, it takes plenty of pot shots at men. I would say it takes plenty of pot shots at women, but it's overall sort of a very – balance viewer relationships that 
makes fun of them, but at the same time isn't nasty about it and, and ultimately celebrates it. Well, it's 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 in a warm, good-hearted yeah. way that it makes mm-hmm. fun right, sure, right. of all the foibles, both yeah. from the dating perspective yeah. as well as from getting along with somebody of the opposite sex and just absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you were um, the fly on the wall eight years ago, sitting in the audience uh-huh. or an audience member, let's say, right. sitting eight years ago, you came back to see it today. Mm-hmm. Has there been much change? Do you update the script? Cha- you know, the only thing that's really changed, and this is not by planning. This is just uh, the way we've written the sh- the way the show happened to be written. The only thing we really changed uh, a little bit was technology has changed uh-huh. because of the it was this was before the internet, before cell phones. So that really has affected dating. And we, Jimmy, not Jimmy Roberts, the composer, and I have changed maybe a half a dozen lines in the last nine years um we really wrote it with just very limited pop references and topical references um and then so we haven't had to do much changing at all but it wasn't a case of where you found something that just wasn't working you, you dumped it and no the it. the show has remained there's been no new songs and no new sketches in the last uh eight or nine years it's it's um, do you ever have the urge to go back other, um, other than than the things you have to do because of the technology? No, you know, because people have been asked us to write a sequel, to do all sorts of things. And when we hit, like, our fifth anniversary, people said, oh, maybe you should write some new sketches to kind of keep it fresh and get it in the press again. But it's it's also tough to sort of go back and capture the voice that you had uh, several years ago, I, I find, as a writer. I mean, you kind of move on to new things. Uh, so, no, we really haven't had that urge. Well, it works very well as it is. Have you ever been tempted to expand it, to take it to Broadway, to make it a bigger show? Or is the charm that it is small I, I, I think and the intimate? charm is that it's four people uh-huh. and that they play uh, many, many characters uh, type of thing. So, no, there's never been it, – it, it's at the West Side Theater on 43rd Street. It's like the perfect, obviously, spot for it since we've been there for eight years now. So there's no – move a foot to, to, to expand it. And the audiences are still showing up regularly, it looks like. It's unbelievable with that show. You know, you really can plan that, and, you know, yeah, it's been great. Now, you've had some international productions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've seen it in other languages, in yep. other cultures. What's that experience? It's, pre- <laughs> it's, it's, it's always, you know, it's people laugh at the same places, pretty much. Uh, there are a couple, a couple cultural differences. I saw it in Spain. And there's a big uh, number at the top of the fir- second act where a woman in bridesmaid's dress uh, bemoans the fact that she has to wear this bridesmaid's dress and she sings about all of her girlfriends who she wore this dress for and the girlfriends have since gotten divorced. Um, but in Spain, they don't have bridesmaid's dresses. So they rewrote – they took the, Jimmy's tune and basically rewrote lyrics to it. Um, and it becomes about a woman who bemoans the fact she has to spend so much money on her friends' um, uh, uh, dresses uh, – or weddings rather – and also, they don't have serial killers in Spain, which, of course, is a good, good thing. Which is a good Not, thing. Again, <laughs> that's a nice. Funny. That's a positive. <laughs> and one of my favorite <laughs> sketches in the show has serial killers, and they had to cut that, but I thought that's a, that's a good thing for you guys. <laughs> so, um, you know, as I said, some of the cultural differences had to have to be uh, fixed, but otherwise, you know, we're really all the same. So really, that show really has played well, at least uh, where I've seen it. And it is purposely one of the tackiest bridesmaids dresses you could come oh, up yeah. with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's costume designer's dreams. <laughs> and, a song like that. And the women in the audience, <laughs> I think, can, can identify. Yeah. Certainly if they had to wear a tacky dress themselves. Absolutely. And most have. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you like to play a song from the show now? Sure. Um, and maybe you could set up. Tell us what the sketch is. Absolutely. Well, this is a, this is actually a song that's going to be self-explanatory because there's no um, uh, dialogue before it. But it takes place in a movie theater, and it's a man and a woman on uh, a date, and she has driven him. Uh, uh, she has uh, taken him to see a chick flick, and the song is called Tear Jerk. Tearjerk from 
I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. The lyrics by Joe DiPietro, who's our guest today on Downstage Center. Joe, getting back to the show, and then we'll move on to some of your other work. Um, I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. That's the, the final song, kind of wraps things up. Uh, how come you put it at the end, not at the beginning, to kind of set the premise for it? Um, well, to be honest, we actually there was another song in the show called uh, "I Love You, Perfect Now Change," which happened in the second act. Uh-huh. And when we were in New Jersey working on the show, Jimmy Roberts and the director Joel Bischoff and myself looked at each other and thought, you know, what? that's like the weak. It happened to be the weakest song in the show, so we wound up cutting it. So "I Love You, Perfect Now Change" at the end was one of the last things we wrote for the show to kind of incorporate the title. So uh, I wish I had a more uh, <laughs> artistic uh, reason for having it at the end. But uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's reasons at the end, and it uh, seems to work well. It's a very um, small, intimate theater. Yeah. And the set uh, is really quite um, functional in the mm-hmm. sense that you have a lot of different things going on on a small stage with a small cast, but it's constantly evolving. Uh, I find that quite quite exciting in terms of watching the show because you never lose um, the idea of what is going on on stage. Okay. Um, who, who did who did all the... Was that, was that part of you getting um, involved? Or, or well, the, I mean, all credit to our, director? Di- our director, Joel Bischoff. He uh-huh. did a great job in keeping that show fluid and fun. And, and also, I, I also think that kind of fluidity is very theatrical. That's what I love uh-huh. about it. You, you know, on television, you would black out, cut to a commercial. But in theater, uh, that fluidity really makes it theatrical and exciting to me. Good. Now, you said that this became a musical mm-hmm. because you were writing these sketches and somebody said you should make it a musical. You'd right. never written a musical before. Uh, in the material, in the playbill, and looking, you have done in the eight years since this mm-hmm. show started, you've been incredibly prolific <laughs> in terms of musicals. Both fully, you, you've continued to write mm-hmm. play. you've written some plays, non-musical, you've written books for musicals using existing music, mm-hmm. And you've written fully original musicals. Where did this spring from? Were you thinking about writing musicals before this happened, or did somebody just have a good idea and you ran with it? Well, I, I always uh, I always loved musicals. I always went to them from uh, the time I was a teenager. Uh, but um, what happened was when I Love You, You're Perfect became a success and looked like it was going to run, suddenly as a book writer of a musical – uh, which there aren't uh, particularly many of, uh, suddenly I started getting calls from composers, calls from producers, and suddenly the opportunities ar- arose. And I love musicals, and I thought, oh, this would be a great way to really learn the form. Because uh, it is a, a very, writing books for musicals, uh, as we know, I'm sure if you're listening to the station, is a very specific craft. So it's been uh, kind of a great education and really just something I kind of took to. Well, I, I love you. Your perfect now change opened in 1996. At what point did you give up your day job writing copy at CBS? <laughs> Do you know, I actually, I, I, I literally, this, and this was not because of any great confidence, but I quit the day before the show opened hmm. um, and just did freelance work for a year. And it, was, it wasn't because I thought it was going to be, it was, it was gonna, I was going to still be talking about it and having it running nine years later, but it was because I was getting busy in terms of other theatrical projects that had come my way and that I was getting produced. So I thought, let me see how this goes for a year or two, and then I'm sure I'll be back in advertising soon. And you probably never looked back after that. No, nah, I never looked back. I'm very, <laughs> very fortunate. <laughs> the Thing About Men. Now, tell mm-hmm. us about that. That's not a sequel, is it? No, it's not. It's, it, it is a show, though, that is a romantic comedy and deals with um, – Many of the themes that Jimmy Roberts and I explored, and I love it, you're perfect, but in a um, uh, story form based on a movie, Men, a German movie by. We think of so many great German comedies, of course. It was actually a funny German farce, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I 
But uh, and anyway, so uh, we got the rights to it, and uh, Jimmy and I wrote it, and it uh, it had I think three out of town tryouts, which did very well, and it was brought in last year and played in the Promenade Theater for six months, and uh, has a bunch of productions lined up for next year. So, you know, it's interesting because when you have a show like I Love You're Perfect, which runs and runs and runs, people always expect the next one to, if it doesn't exactly match that or surpass that success, uh, they wonder what happened, da-da-da-da-da. But um, the thing about Men was, you know, a show I loved and Jimmy loved and we're very proud of and, you know, had a decent run, so. But it certainly wasn't your next show in New York. You had Over the River and Through the Woods was the immediate Mm -hmm. follow-up, which non-musical and had a two-year run at the Houseman. Two years at the Houseman, yeah. And that's a play, a comedy uh, about my Italian-American grandparents, very much inspired by them. And uh, I knew all four of my grandparents when I was growing up, and they had these larger-than-life personalities. And uh, and I wrote basically your basic playwright's uh, coming-of-age uh, play, uh, and very much is about them and their grandson. And the grandson gets a, jo- a job offer across the country, and he has to move away from them. And it's about their attempts to keep them and what family means to him and what family means to them. Uh, but it was very much a valentine to my uh, grandparents and their Italian-American heritage. And in the timing of all of this, mm-hmm. as I said, there seem to be so many projects packed into mm-hmm. these these past eight years. Was that something that you'd been thinking about writing? Was that something that once I Love You, You're Perfect hit, you said, okay, now I'm going to have this be I had thing? written, And how many of these things do you have going on at once? <laughs> I had written I Love You, You're Perfect and Over the Run Through the Woods almost simultaneously. So what happened was I Love You, You're Perfect opened and became a hit. Over the River followed it into town because people were interested in it, uh, in my work much more than they had been since I had nothing else before that. So, um, but I, I do like to write a couple projects at once or sometimes two or three. And it just, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm a theater animal. I mean, I'm fortunate I can write full time for the theater and that's what I do. And so, you know. You've also been fortunate in in the major productions mm-hmm. in New York thus far, you've worked with the same producers on yes. all of them. Mm, How did yeah. that particularly come about? Because that's not a common thing anymore. No, it's actually very unusual. And um, uh, but I love you. You're perfect. I was brought into New York by uh, Jamie Hammerstein, who was Oscar's son. And uh, Jamie died about three years into the run, um, very sadly and suddenly. Uh, and Jamie had hooked up with two other producers named John Pollard and Bernie Kukoff, and they were the three main people behind I Love You Perfect Now Change. Um, and then when Other Than Through the Woods came in, those same three producers also did that, and that show was a success. And then Jamie, as I said, unfortunately passed away, and he was really my mentor. I really have a career because of Jamie. Um, and he and when Jamie passed away, John and Bernie came to me and said, look, we'd, we love your work. We'd still like to produce it in the future. And they produce the thing about men, and they're producing all. They're the main producers behind All Shook Up, which is coming in. So it's just it's it's been remarkable. I mean, they've been so supportive. They're they know how to keep a show running. They you know they're just smart, supportive guys, and it's just been very fortunate. I mean, you kind of have to ask them them more about it, but uh, you know, and, and some and for my type of work, which is are essentially comedies and more commercial. Uh, type comedies to have that type of support from commercial producers, which, as you said, used to happen all the time, but now rarely does. You know, is is just kind of a special thing. Well, one wonders why it doesn't happen more often if you have a good winning combination. Like, obviously, you are working well with these producers; right. they with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think it's you know, I mean, all all caduce to John and Bernie, um, but people need to take a chance on writers, and writers need to be developed, and not every project is gonna 
make what you know millions and millions of dollars. Some projects might not work. Some projects might be middling successes. But you know, writers need to be developed, and regional theaters certainly understand that. Uh, and commercial producers aren't quite in that business, but you know, John and Bernie uh, are. So, well, and with I love you, you're perfect now. Change mm-hmm. you played at. American stage, and you played at Long Wharf before it came into New York. Right. Thing about men had three productions. Yes, played the B Street Theater in Sacramento, uh, a great little theater run by Tim and um, uh, Buck Busfield. Uh, then it went to American Stage Company in New Jersey, and then to the Broward Center in Florida before we came here. And do you really use those tryouts? I mean, how much of a rewriter are you? Rewriter, I yeah, mean, if I people, if people <laughs> yeah. saw I Love yeah. You, are Perfect at Long Wharf, should they uh-huh. be going back to see it now? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I said I write comedy, so I come from the Neil Simon School of Comedy Writing, which is, you know, you get the show in front of an audience, and that's when you figure out what's funny and what they're relating to and what they get ahead of and not. And you rewrite, and you rewrite the jokes, and you rewrite the, the pathos and all that type of thing. So do shows change drastically? Most shows probably change like 25%, but that 25% can be huge. Though somewhere in some material I read, mm-hmm. you were quoted as saying that thing about men changed by 50 or 60% of the show. Probably that, headed, yeah. That and was the most. What were what were the challenges that you faced in, in adapting that material? And we should, if you can tell people quickly mm-hmm. what, what that show is about. Uh, the thing about men is about a uh, – uh, uh, upper middle class advertising executive who's very successful and very uh, kind of type A testosterone fueled guy uh, who ha- has this middle class existence that's very satisfying but he also um, cheats on his wife all the time and he comes home one day to find out that his wife is having an affair and he follows the wife's lover who happens to be this bohemian artist um, and he, who happens to be looking for a roommate sort of an East Village type of guy and uh, the advertising executive moves in with the lover not you know changing his identity not telling him who he is Um, and uh, I mean the challenge with any show it's it's especially a comedy it's finding the right tone especially a musical it's it's making all the elements go here the score the lyrics the book the directing the design kind of thing so that's something that we worked on a lot out of town and continue to work on uh, in New York and with that sort of Mm -hmm. explanation of the show maybe we should play a song from it that would be great you, you can set up yeah. Pick whatever song sure. you want and set up how it plays in the show. Yeah, this next song is called uh, Because, and it's sung by the uh, advertiser, the advertiser's wife, um, and on and the album sung by Leah Hawking. And uh, it's about her feelings towards her husband and why she's having an affair. It's called Because. From the thing about men, lyrics, and book by Joe DiPietro, our guest today on Downstage Center on XM28 on Broadway with Howard Sherman and mm-hmm. yours truly, John Von Susten. Joe, we've been talking about your work uh, with Jimmy Roberts mm-hmm. and, and your plays. You've also been collaborating lately with Rodgers and Hammerstein, the Gershwins. Yeah, they're good. This is <laughs> another whole area. Um be most work yeah. uh, working on new production of Allegro. Having done, they all laughed uh, mm-hmm. a revision of OK up at Good Speed. Also, a Babes in Arms for Good mm-hmm. Speed. How did these come about? <laughs> I mean, just... it's it's a it's a another avenue, as you say. People yeah. look for book writers all the right. time. I I was, uh, I mean, the way that the first one was actually the Gershwin show, uh, which was called They All Laughed, uh, and it's actually now called Heaven on Earth. And um, ho- I hope there's going to be another production of it next year. Uh, but I basically got a call one day from the Gershwin estate, from the Ira Gershwin estate, saying uh, we've seen your work and we're interested in um, 
taking one of our old shows and updating it like they did with Girl Crazy into Crazy for You? And would you be interested in that? And Goodspeed's interested in producing it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to get the... I mean, the chance to work with this, you know, this great, great American songbook and these geniuses, the Gershwins, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, whoever, you know, as a book writer, just something you never planned. I mean, it's off the map. Like, I get to work with this material, you know, <laughs> the stuff you grew up on. So um, I had great reverence for the, 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 their work, and I really tried to um, capture their voice and capture the voice of what a show in those days would be, but as funneled through modern times and a modern voice uh and then when we did the show called they all laughed up a good speed which was a, a very nice success um i got a call from rogers and the hammerstein people about doing a show and a couple others and, and I, I just love doing those shows and i love working with you know as i said ge- geniuses like that so it, it's been a great thing. and how much free range do you get from the estates because there clearly are people as you say in in the case of of they all laughed right. it was mike strunsky who's yes. a nephew of ira gershwin right who called, mm-hmm. and certainly there have been other successful and unsuccessful right. efforts to to turn do do Gershwin shows. You given free reign? Are there certain things that are off limits for you? Um, it will specifically in the Gershwins when I talked to Mike Strunsky about it, and the only the only thing that were off limits were don't use songs from their political show. So don't use of the I sing specifically, uh, and obviously Porky and Bess is its own thing. Um, but uh, so, but other than that, they just basically gave me the Ira and George songbook and said, "Do what you want." Even and, songs that had been in other oh, absolutely no, versions. and that was the idea. The idea, so. the idea was not to revise OK. The idea mm-hmm. was to take the very seed of OK and run with it. Because you ended up with what three songs from the original something OK, like three, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what do you do? Uh, basically, discard some of the lesser-known songs and bring in. It's not so much that they're lesser-known or known. It's actually it's actually the backwards way of writing a musical. Because usually with a musical, you have an idea for a scene or a song, and then you write the specifically song, the words that would come out of that character's mouth. But here, the songs are set. So what I do, especially when you have these large songbooks, is take the songs that I think are going to fit in the world of this plot that I've come up with or have been inspired by these other projects and write backwards and say, okay, who would sing this song? Why would they sing this? What situation would the, this be? And how could we make maybe the song sound a little differently than it was originally um, conceived in the original show as not to sort of copy it? So, uh, but, but I have to say that every family I've worked with uh, on these types of shows have really been great in terms of encouraging me to take free reign with them and really to, 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 though the song is the song, as far as the book and the story goes, to really go as far afield with it as, as I think necessary. And, of course, some of the older shows, like the Gershwin shows, mm-hmm. were not really known for their books. Those right. Well, they, were, they used to write, what, were, three of those a year. So loose, they were, right. And they never thought that they would last. Uh, but there's a lot of fun in some of those old books. I mean, you know, they worked with some so, great writers. So. so how much of the old book do you keep? Do you just toss the whole uh, thing It's out? usually like, inspi- it's usually you take the idea and you run with it. I usually like to kind of keep a line or two just to kind of give myself mm. a little tribute to it and some grounding. But you basically need to sort of have have you have your own ideas with it and go with it. Now, with with Allegro, which mm-hmm. was a much later show, yes, which was a book musical and had mm-hmm. a book. Do you keep that book and just work around it, or do you basically scrap that one? No, um, Allegro came about a little differently because Jamie Hammerstein, who, as I mentioned, was my mentor in this business, had asked me to work on that. His Father uh, Oscar, when he found out he was dying, had asked had had actually the first thing he did was he picked up Allegro again and tried rewriting it, and then he died 
of cancer uh, not long after that. So he never completed it. So I think it was always one of Jamie's lifelong dreams uh-huh. to take this this show, which his father loved, and to redo it for his father. And Jamie was going to help me write it and direct it. And then, as I said, Jamie died as soon as we started working together on this, like very shortly thereafter. And I thought, uh, well, and after he died, I thought, well, I, I was too emotionally upset by it. And I thought, well, this is really Jamie's project and I should just leave it go. And then Ted Chapin, who runs Rogers and Hammerstein, called me several months later and said, look, we'd still like you to do Allegro if, if you're interested. Um, and and I called up Dina Hammerstein, his um, Jamie's widow, and asked, and she said, "Yeah, I think you should do it." So I wound up doing it, um, and, and that so that's that 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 comes from a very sort of deep emotional place for me. That show. And had you and Jamie pretty well formulated the direction the show would go? Some of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wish it was still around to really, you know, Uh (laughs) say, let's do this, let's do this. My dad would have wanted that, but um, yeah, we 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 did a bit of it, and. and it just went and and so the book actually and Jamie encouraged me to change the book as much as possible. I mean, I think it's pretty well agreed that the the original book doesn't work, though the score is glorious, mm-hmm. and the the conceit of it, the idea of the our town idea as a musical is 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 a wonderful idea. Uh, and we just actually this past uh, winter had a very successful production down at um, uh, Eric Schaefer's Signature Theater that Eric directed. Uh, that was very well received, and uh, you know, so we're trying to figure out what its next stop is, but. And when working with the old material, mm-hmm. I noticed um, you commented that they all laughed. Has no undergone a name change yeah. to heaven on earth? <laughs> there are some who suggest that, and, and in fact, your your Elvis mm-hmm. Presley musical, which we'll speak right. of, uh, it appears underwent a name change. Mm-hmm. It seems that some of the appeal of uh-huh. using existing material are the well-known names, yeah. and they all laughed is infinitely better known than heaven on earth. Why Why that choice? And, and is that coming from you? Is that coming from producers? Um, a little bit of both, the name change on that one. Um, they all laughed. Um, I'm not even sure it's going to be in the show anymore, which is part well, of that it. Well, that, that would, would do it. it. <laughs> and I think everyone liked the title Heaven on Earth, which is sort of the end song of, of the show. And, it's a gr- and that's a glorious Gershwin song that is very um, – very, it's a good. It's a well-hidden secret right now. I think it's surprising people, more people don't know. It's just a great, great song. Um, so, so that, that that's the main reason for that. But the, but it's also even like in the Elvis um, show. I wrote "Can't Help Falling in Love" when I was just me writing it, and I thought, what a great title because it was the basis of the show. It's about people who they hear this great Elvis music and they can't help falling in love. Um, and then when producers picked up the show and it sort of moved along, we all said, oh, the song, it's people don't know the song that well and it's too long for the marquee. And then we came up with All Shook Up. And so, also All Shook Up was, yeah. a, was a different era in Elvis's career. As right. And everyone, and everyone hears yeah. All Shook Up and they know. Yeah. So Can't Help Falling in Love was more the writer's conceit. And then <laughs> when but, the producers came along. But the along, show, as I understand, is set in the 50s, which was All right. Shook Up. Can't Help Falling in Love was a different decade. Yeah. But we jump. I mean, the show was set in 1955 uh-huh. uh, in the middle of the decade when Elvis first came to be it's not about Elvis the show uh, but we use songs from the, his throughout his career going well into the 70s so. so we're talking about the Gershwins and Rodgers and Hammerstein on one breath mm-hmm. Elvis in the other mm-hmm. not to mention the off-Broadway work pretty diverse uh, range of interests Oh yeah, well it's you know uh, yes, but uh, but absolutely. But a musical is a musical. I mean, what makes a musical tick or not are, are, are is similar. Um, now, now you you appear to me to be a little bit young to remember Elvis in his prime. Like, I, yes, a little bit. Like when, when, when all <laughs> shook up was a big song, you probably weren't even on. The I show. was not even born yet. No, yeah. but I mean, everyone you know. The thing mm-hmm. about the Elvis music is actually how 
immensely popular it is. If you, still, if you go to a record store, it's still the biggest section in the record store. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, even though I, w- I was born in 61, I grew up with all that music. I mean, I, I knew all those songs. I was a huge Elvis fan. Now, how did that come together? Because in the case of of All Shook Up, you're not dealing with the work of a particular composing right. team. You're actually dealing with a number of composers. It's uh-huh. music that was made famous yeah. by, by Elvis. Yeah. But you have, do you have, you know, Lieber and Stoller songs, which, mm-hmm. of course, we may have already heard some in Smokey Joe's Cafe a number of years ago. You're pulling from from all kinds of sources, right? But it was indeed the Presley Estate that initiated this. Yes, yes. And do they control the rights to this material? They control the rights to much of the material. They don't own all of Elvis's songs, mm-hmm. um, uh, but they were able to basically get any Elvis song that I wanted to use in the show. So yeah, so and that was just one of those. You sit home one day, and I got a phone call from Maxine Lang, who is the president of Williamson Music, which is the publishing arm of Rodgers and Hammerstein, who is my music publisher, who's who used to represent Lieber and Stoller, and it was when Smokey Joe's was was still on Broadway, and she said, you know. I had this, and she owned a lot of the Elvis catalog. Then she goes, "I have this Elvis catalog, and I've been talking to the the Elvis people. Uh, and would you be interested in forming this original musical around these songs? Do you think that's a good idea?" And I said, "Yo, are you kidding, Maxine? That's like you know, it's a call from heaven. I mean, I'd, I'd, you know, book writer. You know, you work with the you know, I mean, the greatest pop singer. You know, the last ever. I mean, I mean, um, certainly rock and roll. So, uh, so, and then that's basically how that came about." And then um, I met with the Elvis folks, and I sort of told them my ideas. And they were great because uh, unlike when you deal with uh, the Gershwins or Roger and Hammerstein people, those are theater people. And the Elvis people had never had their music used in this way ever. So I, th- so I was thinking like – so I would be telling them my ideas, and, and uh, this show is about this new type of music that comes to the small town and it's inspired by the Shakespeare comedies and talk so about that. Kind of, so, well, that's exactly what the yeah, Elvis people the said. They went, excuse me. Yeah, they, excuse I said, me. I said, I said it's inspired by the Shakespeare. Fellow. And they said, what? And I said, no, I said, trust me. I said, it's, it's sort of just inspired by, but it takes place in the 50s in America. Well, well, well why don't you give us in the you know, 25 words or more uh, the sure. storyline. As I understand, it's not a biographical story no, it is Elvis nothing, at all. Because also one of the things the Elvis folks said to me right away was don't put Elvis in it. We don't want... We you can't cast an Elvis impersonator on a Broadway stage, and I said you're absolutely right. Uh, so um, what I, I and I also one thing which I knew I wanted right away is I wanted to hear these songs sung by many different types of voices. I wanted young, I wanted old, I wanted men, women, black, white, chorus, trios, duets. I didn't want to be imitating the Elvis records because they're brilliant and you can't imitate them in any sort of um, interesting way. So uh, so they so they liked all those. So they agreed with. With with all those thoughts, and the story that I basically came up with is about this um, depressed town in the middle of the fifties. Nothing ever happens. Uh, it's just everyone wants to get out. Uh, and then one day, this uh, blonde-haired guitar-playing roustabout comes to town on this motorcycle, uh, and he touches the jukebox. This jukebox that just jukebox. I'm sorry, that's been dead for years, and it lights up, and it suddenly sends this new type of music into this town, and suddenly everybody starts falling in love with everybody else. But of course, people start falling in love with the wrong person. They fall in love for the wrong reasons. Cause so that's beautiful. the Midsummer Night's Dream Midsummer reference. Night's Dream. Is the mismatched lovers, exactly, from the and the magic of the potion, and then it's got. Uh, it's got a Twelfth Night mistaken identity. Girl dresses up as a boy. It's got a bunch of weddings at the end, like Much Ado. I mean, it's got a bunch of 
it, it, I wanted to capture the feet. There's some there's some specific plot points from the Shakespeare comedies, but I wanted to really capture the feel of those Shakespeare comedies and the feel of love as intoxicating and the multiple weddings at the end, which we have. Because uh, I also and it's also very much based on the joy this Elvis music brings. I mean, I always. You know, you listen to this music, and it's still so vibrant and vital. It doesn't sound dated at all, which I, is amazing. I guess in the way you could say the West Side Story was based on Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not right. literally Shakespeare, but it's the yeah, same it's sort of Yeah, it's inspired by. And I thought Elvis and Shakespeare was a really interesting combination. Well, we certainly haven't had any Elvis Presley <laughs> no, Shakespeare exactly. musicals before, so <laughs> you, you know. you, yeah. you're yeah. certainly mining a new field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coming out of a workshop uh-huh. uh, this past summer, yeah. you're going to Chicago. Mm-hmm. What... What did you learn from the workshop? What what might you be changing? What are you what are um, you looking to do? Other than inevitably getting much bigger, right? It obviously, yeah, obviously, obviously, show we, we it played at Chester at Good Speed in a lovely little two hundred seat theater. Um, and what did we learn? Uh, we learned the show works, and we learned it's a real crowd pleaser. Um, we the things you learn, which is and it's always. In any of these musicals I've, I've taken uh, where you have pre-existing songs, the hardest thing is always the opening because you generally you write a show and then you write the opening number last because then you know what the show is and what information you need to set up the show. But Elvis Presley didn't never sang an opening number for a show. Um, and when you change some of the Gershwin songs, the plot of the Gershwin, there's no real opening number there. So – the big thing we learned was really to kind of figure out what the opening number is going to be. Is it parts of songs? Is it one song? Is there a lot of dialogue? Do you not open with a song? I mean, there's all those kind of decisions. Um, but the also the also interesting thing that you learn when you do a show like this, and especially with the Elvis songs, is that an audience brings so much meaning and feeling to a song starting. That when you do an original musical, you start the song and people wait to hear the song, but you start... Heartbreak Hotel, uh, yeah, tender, people get people, people start there, yep. and they have their own memories and their own feelings, uh, and you feel you know song cues can get applause and they can get laughter and they can get this this kind of audience you know sense of joy that you is so palpable. Um, so it's, it's 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 a fascinating thing for a musical. Well, there are a couple dozen Elvis songs in All Shook Up. Yep. How about any Joe DiPietro songs? No, any, it's any all original? Elvis. No, no, all, no, no, no. Uh, I, I sometimes wish I could write an opening number to this because uh, <laughs> it would <laughs> it would make it easier. But having said that, no, it's all Elvis. It's, it's everything Elvis sang. Probably a dozen of the songs everyone knows and another dozen only a real diehard fan would know. Well, we why, took, well mm-hmm. why not any original songs to either set it up or to carry the show along? Um, it just doesn't seem like right. Actually, it seems like if you're going to do a jukebox musical, you should use. I mean, for you know, whatever. I mean, not that there are any rules. Stay, stay true to the the original. Yeah, and I want to ask you about mm-hmm. jukebox musicals. Now, yes. I'm, I have an article here from uh, that up in Goodspeed about three years ago, and this mm-hmm. isn't a direct quote, but uh-huh. this is already three years ago talking right. about uh, All Shook Up, or mm-hmm. as it was known then, Can't Help Falling in Love. Um, but the reporter paraphrased you saying, DiPietro believes the strength of Presley's songs will be reaffirmed when removed from the kitsch of Presley's life and lasting image. In concentrating too much on the songs, DiPietro said, producers make no attempt to create believable or interesting characters and storylines. Is this a fair summation of, of your thoughts as you were <laughs> dealing with it? As I said, it is a paraphrase, right. so I want to be careful. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would use the word kitsch of Elvis's life, but what I did try to do in All Shook Up was really treat it as an original musical and really integrate these songs. So these songs came from characters' mouths. So if someone 
sings um, love you know Heartbreak Hotel, for instance, they're singing Heartbreak Hotel because they're heart because they're heartbroken because there's a real reason for them to sing it. Um, uh, so that that th- that that was probably. That certainly didn't sound like me speaking, but it was certainly the paraphrase was probably true is you really do try to make these sound like thoughts coming from characters and the characters are having these thoughts for the first time. Because there is this this outpouring of the jukebox musicals. Oh, yeah. That we're seeing. Well, you know, it's it's because what happens is when you put an original story to them, it's like doing a revival in terms of the music, but you get an original story. So, and one reason, I mean, remember 10 years ago, it was all about revivals. Everything was a revival. But then you ran out of the shows and people got tired of the old stories. But some, but people love hearing songs that they know, especially when they're paying $100 a ticket. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. And um, you know, if you see All Shook Up, that you're going to be hearing a great Elvis Presley score. Well, you're taking All Shook Up to Chicago later this yep. year, mm-hmm. and then the end of February of 2005, it opens, uh, previews. We start previews, yeah. At the Palace here in New York, Absolutely. and then opens in March. Mm-hmm. How about casting for the show? Um, we're pretty much cast. Uh, we have great Broadway uh, talent, Gerard Emick, uh, Jennifer Gambatis, who's fabulous right now in Hairspray, uh, Leah Hawking, Sharon Wilkins, Jonathan Hadare. We have a wonderful uh, Alex Curry, John Jellison, wonderful cast. Uh, of real kind of Broadway veterans and also uh, what I like, really funny people too. <laughs> they have great voices. Uh, and also up is very much a comedy and it's very much about the joy of the music and the joy of falling in love. And certainly this cast really uh, embodies that. When, when does the show open in Chicago? Uh, our first performance, I believe, is December 19th. And then it plays there for about a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by Chris Ashley. Uh, Stephen Aremus, I must add, has done great uh, music arrangements. One thing we wanted to do with the music of Elvis was we didn't want to replicate the records on stage. We wanted all these songs to have their own distinctive theatrical feel, and uh, Stephen has done a, a great job in, in making that happen for us. Then February 20th, is it? For, is our previews? first preview. And I believe it's March 24th, I believe, is uh, opening night at the Palace. You, you resisted the Ides of March on the 15th for opening. <laughs> a Shakespeare show. Shakespeare, might, might I, I know. I don't know. So. It's too, too late now. <laughs> well, thank you for coming in. Oh, my and pleasure. Talking to us. It's exciting to have the longest running off Broadway show now with I Love You're Perfect mm-hmm. and reaching continual milestones with every That's, performance, I amazing, suppose. Yep. <laughs> and uh and then coming to what will in fact be your first Broadway show. This is my Broadway debut, yeah. So I guess so. I make it with Elvis. So that's uh, that, that's that's also one of those things you, you don't you, plan. You guys have fun. I hear <laughs> I, I hear he'll be a lot of fun at the cast party. <laughs> Pretty good way to start out. Broadway. Some would suggest he could show up. So we'll see Maybe what happens. Maybe we'll leave a seat for him. You never know. For Downstage Center, I'm John Von Susten of XM28 on Broadway, and with a mention of his website. Howard Sherman from the American Theatre Wing reminding you that all of these interviews and a variety of other multimedia material is available at www.americantheaterwing.org for free on demand. And again, Joe DiPietro, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure.